Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Sheena, every once in a while, I don't know, once a quarter or so, I find Mm -hmm. myself looking for some new tools, some new technology. Now, I don't Mm -hmm. always buy every quarter, but I would say around that time, you know, around that frequency, I end up on a product page, which leads me to their pricing page. Mm-hmm. Now, as a marketer, I enjoy this process. I like seeing what their front, you know, what's their uh, home page all about. How do they break down their product? How are they positioning? And then I have a not so fun experience, which is I get <laughs> to the pricing page, and it's essentially contact sales. Right. Now I'm, I'm known to get flustered. I'm known to be a little divisive. So am I alone in this frustration or is this something that you two are also like, I wish the pricing was just there? Yeah, I mean like for me, it's it's really, really similar. And I just wanna know like ballpark, like is this something that's gonna work for me or not? Like I don't expect to have like the exact number and things may differ, but you wanna know like, are we in the right ball game or not? That this is something I should be considering for my team or or not today. Um, and I think more and more companies like in general are pretty transparent with, with pricing and they'll break down the different tiers, the different, uh, kind of capabilities that you get within each one. And I do appreciate that, uh, because it, it gives me something to like base some kind of decision if I want to continue this conversation or not. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely part of it is like, is this within budget or is this very expensive? My thought too is depending on what that price is, it's how much work it's going to take for me to buy this thing, right? Like, you know, there's that $10,000 rule that we all kind of know about, which is like you can get things purchased sub $10,000 pretty easily. If something's $60,000, I'm like, okay, there's a whole process. CFO is going to get involved. And I just like to know that up front. And I've been pleasantly surprised with uh, Riverside FM. I'll give them a shout out, our podcast platform, because I went to their website and there was, you know, your your standard uh, basic pro enterprise. And they told me the price immediately. I was like, wow, this is very affordable. Went and got the company credit card. We bought it like a week later, right? Mm -hmm. Very simple. Mm -hmm. Now the enterprise package did have contact us, which I did do, it it did get me (laughs) because I was like, you know, it comes with some nice things. But then, you know, that's a whole thing, right? You're in the funnel, it's a process. So anyway, I'm sure we all have kind of different uh, opinions here and we know we're all about reality, but we brought Kyle Poyer in, who's a pricing and packaging expert to help explain why are there scenarios where you should have your pricing on your website, scenarios where you should not have your pricing on your website. And I was really fascinated by that, having been a seller and as I just mentioned, a buyer. Exactly. And we also talk a lot about the role of sales in this process of determining pricing, determining what's being shown on the website and more 
Um, I think there are some companies that are very sales driven and that's like natural for them. And there are many other companies where um, it's maybe more of a product and executive and marketing decision or, you know, some combination of those. But as I think most of the listeners on this episode know, sales is closest to the customer usually. So making sure that they have a seat at the table in these type of decisions. Closest to the customer and closest to my heart. And that's where I actually thought you were going to say sales is closest <laughs> to my heart. Skirt! Gina, we almost forgot a big announcement. That we did. And, you know, it's been like a tough year. We've been apart and we have craved being closer together to our colleagues, our customers and more. And that's why we're reuniting you, the deal closers, the coaches, the revenue leaders for the biggest bash of the summer. And guess what? We're inviting you. There it is. There's the Sheena. I, <laughs> I was like, yeah. uh, That's right. Celebrate. The celebration of the summer is back. It's a day of next level learning, real connection, and serious motivation. Join thousands of revenue pros who are coming together from all corners of the globe to celebrate your accomplishments, celebrating your grit, celebrating you. So sign up today, and guess what? The event is free. Free 99. And save the date, July 21st. You can sign up at celebrate.gong.io. See you there. Kyle, welcome to Reveal. We're super excited to have you here at the show. Thanks for having me on. So to kick things off and to give some context for the audience, Kyle is a partner at OpenView. Um, he is specifically, I, I would call an influencer in the pricing world. Um, I have heard about him from multiple folks. He posts a ton of amazing content and thought leadership around everything related to pricing. Um, if you have a product marketer or pricing specialist at your company, ask them if they know Kyle. They will probably start, you know, shouting and jumping up and down and being super excited that there's that you listen to this podcast with him on it. So before we kick into it, how did you navigate your career and ultimately land on pricing and become a specialist in the world of pricing? Honestly, uh, I stumbled into it, which is probably not the answer that folks are looking for, but uh, I went to undergrad as an environmental uh, studies and economics major and did environmental science related uh, internships all throughout college and then graduated in the recession and uh, was realizing uh, wanted to get a, a good job that where I was going to learn uh, quite a, a lot about how decisions got made and how to really uh, build a kind of a marketable skill set from a career standpoint. And the consulting world called, uh, joined a consulting firm called Simon Kutcher and Partners that happens to be the world leader in pricing and packaging consulting and uh, just fell in love with it and realized pricing is so strategic yet so underappreciated at the average company. Uh, most SaaS companies don't have anyone that focuses on pricing and packaging until they get to about 50 million in ARR. And so uh, it's, it's just fascinating. And the combination of behavioral economics that goes into it, kind of consumer or customer psychology, uh, analytics, uh, that uh, becomes part of making good pricing decisions, just a really fascinating topic. And so uh, spent six years at Simon Kutcher and then have kind of continued in my role at OpenView uh, working with our portfolio companies on pricing and packaging. I think some of the most interesting career decisions get made 
opportunistically like that. I think if you had even asked any Devin or myself or anybody else, like, where, where are you going to be in 10 years? We would not have said where we are right now. So um, great place where you ended up. Exactly. Yeah, very happy with, uh, with where I ended up. And we actually have our, uh, our newest portfolio company is called NCAMP, and they're in the environmental uh, space. And so the, mm-hmm. the founder was actually an environmental science and econ major as well, and uh, can finally put that degree to good work. In doing some kind of research and prepping for today, I saw that you recently, I think it was a couple months ago, uh, started a newsletter called Growth Unhinged. And your social post alone uh, and some intrigue around you got me to subscribe. Uh, So I'd love to hear a little bit about that newsletter and what motivated you to to start it. Absolutely. Well, so I I, I sit in an interesting role at OpenView where I'm working with not only our portfolio companies, but you know, broader companies in uh, the SaaS landscape around different topics around growth and scaling a startup from you know zero to 100 plus million annual recurring revenue. So I'm a fly on the wall in working with companies as they think about you know how are we going to acquire customers? How can we adopt elements of product-led growth, which is kind of the buzzword of of software in 2021? How do we monetize our products? And realize I, I should take some of those conversations and, and the learnings and share them more publicly uh, and create more of a community around best practices. And uh, I also tend to be pretty data driven looking at public companies and how they're performing or surveying uh, SaaS companies. And so all of, uh, all of my content tries to be practical and, and kind of real life with a company while also bringing in outside data evidence and examples. Uh, to support it. And uh, we're a few months into the journey and the reaction has been positive so far. So I have to keep doing it now. Congrats on early success. I saw you had 900 people register on the first day, which is, which wow. is saying something. Yeah. Apparently there's uh, there's some pent up demand for, for pricing content. <laughs> and yeah, you, you might be new to it. And I think a lot of people stumble into it, but once they uh, get bit by the pricing bug, it's, uh, it's something that doesn't go away. Because really, I mean, every, uh, every product needs to be priced and everything you buy has a price on it. And that's not, you know, some uh, miracle of supply and demand sets a perfect price for you. There's actually people who get together in a room and make a decision around how much you should pay. Uh, and uh, it, it's fascinating how those decisions get made. In a uh, previous life, I was a sales rep, usually at early stage companies, Gong included. And I was always fascinated with the concept of changing the pricing and the pricing model. So I've, I always thought it was interesting. Uh, but as a sales rep, you're not involved in those conversations too often, right? You're, you're, you're given a slide and, and some enablement and you're told to, to go to market. Um, so I do find it fascinating. So I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to hearing from you today. I'll, I'll say that the um, limit to my experience was early days of Gong selling with the RVP of sales. And we were in a small room, as most startups are. And he looks over, he's like, I think we can raise the price. I'm like, oh, cool. Like, what do you, what makes you think that? He's like, I, I don't know. I just think we can do it. Uh, so we picked a number out of thin air, raised it, <laughs> raised it to that much and just started going to market like, and people paid for it. Um, so I'm excited also to say, I'm very excited, Kyle, to hear the right way to do it. Since I doubt, uh, you know, a, a quick, you know, passing conversation is, is the uh, most strategic way to, to land on that number. That it's not the most strategic way, but you know that it's something that comes up way more than most companies would admit. Uh, 
And in fact, when I survey companies around pricing, the average uh, startup increases price by more than 50% from seed to expansion stage, and then another 50% from expansion to growth stage. And so typically, you know, companies are quite underpriced early on. And then it's, it's actually fascinating because you, as a startup, you have so many things going on, right? You have a lot of hair on fire problems. You're responding to customers. You're fixing your product. Pricing is not normally the most urgent hair on fire thing for you to go solve. But the revenue impact of changing pricing, especially if you can increase price by 50% and your customers are still buying, like that's a pretty significant impact. But it's not the thing that seems urgent to go fix. But I, what I kind of argue for a lot of folks that are earlier stage listening is that uh, pricing might not feel urgent, but it's maybe the number one most impactful thing you should be doing right now. So you've got to make it urgent. Can you elaborate? Like, why is it so important? Of course, you know, for sales folks, like that's how they're getting their commission for a revenue leader, for the CEO, like that's, those are the targets that they're setting for their company. But why should it be your number one or number two or number three uh, strategic initiative? Yeah, so I'll walk through a few reasons. What well, I guess first off is the opportunity to raise price is pretty significant. Uh, and the revenue growth implications of doing that are, are pretty major. So when I've surveyed companies uh, that have changed pricing, which is almost always a price increase in the startup world, uh, 98% said that their revenue growth increased after they did it. And uh, 40% said their revenue growth increased 25% or faster because of that decision. And if you think about the number of things you can do as a business to grow by 25% or faster, more than you're already growing, how many can be done relatively quickly and without additional headcount on your team to go implement? Don't increase your cost of acquisition necessarily or your cost of goods sold. Uh, like, Pricing is just the most powerful lever that anyone has. Uh, so I'd say like number one is that revenue impact. And then I, I also would challenge companies to think about it in terms of being able to have a foundation to grow the business. And so you can only invest so much in acquiring customers, right? Building a sales and marketing experience to attract folks. You can only build so much of that insofar as you can pay that off with your uh with how much your customers pay. And so that's your CAC payback period. It has to be fairly healthy. If you're able to increase price by 50% and, and convert the same percentage of customers that you had before, all of a sudden you can afford 50% more in sales and marketing to go attract more of the right customers. And so you can actually build a business that is not only growing because of pricing, but allows you to fund future growth efforts, a bigger sales team, more marketing spend to attract the right customers. And actually that's a foundation where all of a sudden you haven't just grown 25% faster because of pricing, you've set up a foundation to scale 50%, 100%, more than that. And it started by rethinking how you were approaching pricing. So on the topic of increasing pricing, I feel like it's kind of easy for a vendor uh, to say, oh, we're gonna increase price. Okay, sure, we're gonna have higher revenue. But that has a huge impact on your current customers, and you have to now notify them that price is changing, assuming that they're going to continue to renew. So then that's how you'll hit that you know, 25% growth or whatever number you're aiming for. What is the best way for sales teams, customer success teams uh, to communicate this? And what do you need to be communicating to your existing base of clients? 
Well, I'd first off challenge that assumption. Uh, it's possible that you're going to go back and change pricing on your existing customers, but it's not mandatory. And in fact, if you're doubling your headcount or your customer count year over year, that revenue that their new cohorts of customers are bringing in is going to be much, much more impactful than the install base after you look back at 12, 18, 24 months from now. And so you might find if you're in that hyper growth mode that it's not even worth it to go back to your existing customers. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. And, and so I, I try to bifurcate the decision. Like, is it, does it make sense to change pricing? And then based on that, does it make sense to go back to your existing customers and change pricing on them or just, just the new cohorts of customers? And on the new side, I'd say a lot of folks don't know how much they're going to pay for your product before you tell them what the price is, which gives you a lot of flexibility on how you approach pricing for those customers. Your existing customers already know how much they paid, and now it's a price increase. But for your new customers, essentially, this is just what the price is going forward. And I always want to test pricing on new cohorts of customers that don't have these preconceived notions, haven't been told what to expect. And you can see what that impact looks like. And, and that de-risk gives you a lot more confidence before going back to, to the install base. So always do that first. Uh, if you are going to choose to go back to your existing customers, there's a few things I like to do that makes the price increase go over a bit smoother. The first is generally to validate, hey, is a price increase the right strategy or is there a different approach we, we should be taking should we charge on a different metric? So should we charge on usage rather than just users? Or maybe should we uh, offer different packages where there's a more expensive enterprise edition that we can go upsell customers into at a higher price rather than charging more for everyone? So with that in mind, you might also think about uh, where are customers in their journey with you? And do you wanna take a one size fits all approach or be more segmented? So you might say, hey, there's customers that are at risk of churning based on their usage patterns. Uh, and there's also customers that are seeing a ton of value and do, uh, you know, would be more than willing to pay more for the product. And so your price increase strategy on that install base can be more segmented and personalized based on where your customers are. You don't necessarily need to take the same exact approach with everyone. And then the final thing I'd say is, pricing changes with your customers can be also a way for you to talk about all the great things that you've done over the last 18, 24 months, what features you've released, investments you've made in them, and what investments you're going to continue to make. And so while it's at the end of the day, a pricing conversation, I want it to also be a conversation around value and helping customers kind of see the innovation that you're able to provide. Because many folks, you know, Especially, we're, we're in B2B software, right? So if you're selling to a business, that business understands that uh, if they're paying more for a product, they're okay doing that if they're gonna see more value over time. And uh, that's something that I think a lot of companies forget. They think it's just about price. It's really about price versus value. Sticking with the pricing status quo feels most comfortable. It might be nerve wracking to consider raising prices that could cause churn or lowering prices and losing revenue. That's why I want to bring up this stat from Bain and Company, which they found by surveying CEOs, CROs and VPs of sales at over 1700 B2B companies. They found that 85% of respondents said that their pricing decisions could be better. 
That includes areas like discounts, raising prices, and having the tools they need to know if their decisions are actually working or not. So how can sales leaders and company executives gain confidence on their pricing decisions? Well, the survey also found that 26% of the companies use software that helps them make data-driven pricing decisions. In turn, these companies had the most successful pricing strategies to maximize revenue and minimize churn. The companies using data to drive pricing strategy knew what their reps were saying, and even more importantly, what their customers and prospects were saying about their pricing structure. This allowed them to see when pricing models like discounts or upsells were successful or not and implement the successful strategies at scale. Like Kyle says, they know whether the juice is worth the squeeze when it comes to all things pricing. How does sales play a role in this? And I don't mean the activity of sales, but the sales department, the sales lead. Are they typically part of this decision-making process? Are they involved in maybe like a, what we call like a tiger team, right? We're like, let's try to go into market on a small scale and see how it's uh, how it's received or, or maybe a third option that I'm, I'm not even thinking of. Well, the, the way, a lot of times the way sales invo is involved is the way you talked about at the beginning of they're told at the end, Hey, here's the new price list. Here's some enablement. Here's a one pager on it. Take this training. Otherwise you got to start selling at this new pricing. And then folks wonder why it's not adopted very well by the sales team or why there's discounting behavior or why people aren't, aren't consistent uh, when you go back and audit the Kong recordings later on. I like to involve sales much earlier and starting with even just understanding what you wanna fix about pricing. Sales is having all of these conversations with customers uh, and getting feedback on pricing in just about every one of these conversations. And so you should be listening to the recordings on how is it brought up? What are the questions that customers typically have? what objections are raised, and, and then also interview the sales team of what concerns they have. Because also if you can get sales as input at the beginning, you're gonna come up with a better answer in the end and have a better chance of folks actually implementing it in the field. And then when you do have pricing that you wanna go move forward with, I typically like to pilot that pricing with a handful of reps before, uh, before implementing it live across everyone. And I typically look for forward-thinking reps that are open to a new approach, typically have been higher performers um, that can you know, sell new products that can really uh, wrap their head around these changes. And then what happens in some of these successful cases is that uh, the new reps are you know, doing really well with the new pricing. They're achieving higher deal sizes. They don't have a ton of pushback. And all of a sudden, all of the other reps are actually asking, hey, when are we going to get access to this new pricing as well? And so when you pilot it, you can be surprised about pricing changes being a pull from the field and generating excitement versus having to kind of constantly fight and getting the reps to adopt it. You, you mentioned it though, like anecdotally, yeah, the sales team wanting to get more involved, wanting to adopt this is a great sign. Is there any other way that you typically measure the success of uh, the rollout of a new pricing strategy? Well, the success is going to depend on the objectives a company has with the changing pricing in the first place. And so you might be trying to increase your average contract size, in which case you're looking at what's the change for, these, for this new pricing versus the old pricing. You might be actually trying to speed up the sales process and close deals faster. Uh, some of the things I consistently look at, though, are 
win rates, like does your win rate from qualified opportunity to close one deal, has that been negatively impacted? Uh, is that not impacted at all? Is that positive? Uh, and then looking at what are the win-loss reasons? And so are you losing deals because of price more frequently? Are customers pushing back more than they were before? And then finally, at the realized price versus your list price. And so you might have, you might say, hey, for a 50 user deal, here's what the list price is and here's what the discounted price is. But the, the, end, the reality is that the deal might actually be sold for 40, 50, 60% under what the recommended price is. And you can tell whether the folks in the field are actually adopting the new pricing based on how close those deals are coming relative to where the price is supposed to be. So we're in a pretty rapidly changing world. Um, you know, there's constantly new products. Uh, you know, there, there are even companies that are showcasing the pricing of different, that vendors provide. So buyers actually have access to more and more information. Um, you know, in addition to maybe that, what other kinds of trends are you seeing from, from buyers and how should that influence how folks who are focused on pricing actually price their products? It is fascinating. I'd say the first thing is, yeah, people are doing a lot more research online before they're getting in touch with sales. I, I think that's been happening for a long time. COVID potentially even accelerated it. And one of the most important things that buyers are looking for is information around pricing. And they're, they're finding it in many cases, whether they're talking to peers who bought software before, they're looking at peer review sites, uh, they're even, you know, messaging forums and uh, private communities where folks share this kind of information. And so if you're a buyer actually, or if you're a, a vendor and you were not transparent at all on your website with pricing, you might actually be missing out on an opportunity to both get that traffic, uh, which is a very high intent traffic. Pricing pages tend to be like the second or third most visited pages on a company's website. So you're missing out on all those people who want that information and you're not able to present it in the right light where buyers are all of a sudden uh, searching for information and then they find it about you on someone else's website rather than on your own website in, in a way that you wanna position it. So that, that's first off is doing more information. And then I'd say the other thing that's come up loud and clear is that end users rather than just executive buyers are becoming more important in purchase decisions. And that's happening at organizations large and small. And that's even what's fueling the rise of this trend called product-led growth, where end users might even adopt a product, uh, start to roll it out with their team, and then tell their boss what to buy. But even, you know, if I think about my experience buying software or my, or my portfolio company's experience buying software, it's not normally the C-level person going out looking at vendors, creating that long list of companies to reach out to, having the initial conversation, there's someone on their team. And it's more and more important to actually appeal to the end user or that team lead than just that executive buyer in an organization. And I think that many organizations forget that and they don't have a strong enough end user value proposition in addition to their executive value proposition. So I feel like you've pretty much answered my question, but I'm going to be very straightforward because this is the question I was living to ask you. Should companies put their pricing on their website visibly? Well, I don't, I hate using the, the answer. It depends. That is generally the answer, <laughs> but 
My argument. I had a feeling that was coming, but I wanted to ask anyway. (laughs) My argument is that when in doubt, be more transparent. Uh, And yes, uh, some of that is maybe just what I want as a as a consumer. But realistically, I think it allows you to reach people earlier in their research process and uh, you know have and own that customer life cycle, that customer journey. It allows you to position pricing the way you want to talk about it. And it acts as a really good qualification signal too. And so you don't want your team to be going to be wasting a lot of resources on buyers that aren't qualified whatsoever and reach out to do a demo. You spend 30, 45 minutes with them. All of a sudden you get to pricing and it's like, like phone call end, <laughs> a Zoom call over. This is just out of our budget. This is not even anywhere within range. That's a bad experience for the buyer. And that's a bad experience for your sales team that just wasted a bunch of time that could have been a lot more productive at qualified buyers. And, uh, and I think the final thing I'd say is that if you publish pricing, you get a lot of interesting data and signals back from the market. You can put analytics on that page. You can use it to, to generate buyer intent. You can have chat interactions with people on that page who are more qualified buyers really looking at pricing rather than just uh, looking at you know your homepage or, or your blog. And so I'd say that there's a lot of great ways that you can leverage, uh, leverage that as a kind of competitive advantage uh, and as a way to accelerate uh, adoption that a lot of companies don't take advantage of. It sounds like the answer is yes. And I agree with you, Kyle, because as a consumer, I want to know the price immediately, probably because I'm on Amazon all the time. I expect things to be visible and fast. What would be the, what, you know, to play devil's advocate, because you said depends. Why, what are the scenarios or what are the reasoning uh, behind why you should not publish it on your website? Yeah, well, uh, you don't have to spend very long with that enterprise sales rep before you hear <laughs> some of the reasons. Uh, a lot of times, you know, what, what feedback I get is that customers don't uh, know the value yet. Right? They have to be educated. They have to go through a demo. They have to walk through a business case before they understand how much they should pay for your product, uh, which to me just seems like they're not really good at marketing <laughs> versus it, it, it's, that's a solvable problem. But that is something that comes up uh, over and over again. And then I think there, there are some instances when a company hasn't actually nailed their pricing strategy yet. So they might have multiple models for different customer types. Maybe they're experimenting with different models. It's a lot harder to do that experimenting uh, or or changing pricing for different scenarios if your pricing is public. Once your pricing is out there, there's an expectation in folks' mind of how much they're gonna have to pay. And it actually becomes really distracting for the customer if you start pitching different pricing models for them. And so, you know, you can, you have to ha- be at a place with your pricing where you're confident uh, in it uh, in order to, to make it public. Yeah, and I can see this like would evolve over time where maybe you have very minimal information as your company grows and matures. Maybe you have some basic information on how you price. Maybe that grows into showcasing the different SKUs you have. And then ultimately, there's more full transparency around it, or there's full transparency for some SKUs, but not others. So I think there's like so many different variations of what transparent could look like for a company as well. Totally. There absolutely is. Uh, 
And I think going through that process can, I think, help you clarify how to talk about packaging and, and price points and the way you charge and like your philosophy around it in a way that connects with those buyers that you have. Because, you know, when, when you want to make pricing public, even if it's not making everything public, you have to really distill it down and make it, you know, valuable and in a, in a, in a language that a customer can understand without a salesperson kind of there to support it. I think that's actually a healthy process for a company to go through. Like they should have to do that with their pricing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should not use sales conversations as a crutch uh, to not simplify. So coming back to trends that you're seeing in the space, we're all familiar with traditional pricing models, which are seat-based or usage-based, license-based. What are some new and interesting pricing models that you've seen? Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I have to say the usage-based trend, uh, while you know it's been around for a little while and I think people know about how AWS and Twilio charge, companies are taking that to the next level and really going pay-as-you-go or consumption-based uh, in, in pricing at the, at the low end. And that's it's really a kind of a huge phenomenon over the last couple of years. It's another thing where I'd say that trends have played out such that Companies now have a ton, have a ton better visibility into how their customers engage with the product, uh, and so usage based pricing used to be really hard to do in the past. Now there's the technology that makes it more uh, readily available, and then from a buyer perspective, you don't necessarily know how much you want to adopt, how many people need to log in, and with COVID, you might have even had uncertainty around what what you know your business is going to look like. And that ability to pay flexibly based on exactly how much you consume is a much more attractive value proposition, I think, now than it used to be a few years ago, where every, everything seemed very predictable. We just need, we, you know, we know our headcount, we know what our business is going to look like, we want to, you know, lock in our budget for it. Uh, we're just in a different environment now. And so I'm seeing so many companies launching consumption-based pricing models that had never had it before. And those companies performing super well, which is making it interesting for for other companies. Uh, Another thing I'd call out is uh, free free offerings. And so this is, again, I think the audience on this call is going to be a number of sellers who would probably hate me for uh, for pointing this out. Uh, But, you know, when, when we look back at COVID and the lockdowns last year, one of the first ways that companies responded was they said, our demand just like fell. No one is engaging in sales conversations anymore. We've got to do something to get people interested again. And so you saw companies launch free editions. Maybe it was free for 90 days, free until October, until the end of the year. Uh, many different campaigns around free. But what's fascinating is that those campaigns did so well for different companies that they decided to make them permanent or introduce you know, fully free versions. Even companies like GoDaddy, which is like 90s era hosting business, kind of not a freemium SaaS company in the traditional sense, they tested freemium as more of like an A-B test and experiment around April of last year. And it worked so well generating millions of new signups that they've slowly expose more and more traffic, and now it's just their default model for going to market. Uh, JFrog, which is a, a public company in the developer space that targets large enterprise companies, uh, launched their freemium edition in October. 
I've seen dozens of companies from smart startups to public companies uh, start to launch free editions for the first time. And uh, the results have been staggering. All right. So Kyle, I'm going to mix it up on you a little bit. Gina doesn't even know about this. Uh -oh. At the end of every interview, we ask our interviewee the same question, but I'm going to change a little bit for you. Are you ready? Okay. How would you describe pricing in one word? In one word? Oh, I, I can only use one word. That is really <laughs> difficult. Uh, I guess the, the word that comes to mind most is value. Because to me, pricing is ultimately, uh, uh, it's a judgment on how much value you're creating for customers and how much of that value you think you can capture. Uh, we're in software. We're not, we're generally uh, pricing based on cost because then our prices would essentially be zero. Uh, and the biggest cost is our cost of acquisition and not our ongoing cost of, of delivering the software. So it's actually just a fascinating study of who gets value, why they get value, when do they get value, and what do they need from you in order to see that delivered. And so, yeah, if I think about anything related to pricing, it's, it's value. Great answer. The question we usually ask, and I did this on purpose, is how would you describe sales in one word? And obviously, as the pricing and packaging guy, I wanted to switch it up on you, but there's something to be said that multiple sales leaders come on the show and they say sales described in one word is also value. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what correlation we're making there between pricing and sales, but value centric for sure. Absolutely. Well, that's another reason why I love including sales folks in pricing uh, conversations. Like the best sales reps have a really solid understanding of the value that a given customer is going to see. And they're often like, you know, while a lot of marketers and finance folks probably hate this, like they're often doing real life pricing tests <laughs> mm -hmm. on their own, yeah. seeing, hey, with this different pitch, with this buyer that we're targeting, given this ROI, I think I can get 25% more, 30% more in this deal. And folks look at that and say, hey, they're not following our standard practices. But I look at it and say, hey, they're really smart at understanding who sees value and when. And let's try to take those insights and apply them to a more consistent way of pricing. Well, Kyle, it was really great to have you on the show. Um, I have to say that you challenged a lot of perceptions that I had about pricing. And I actually took some notes down to go check in with the team on some things as well. So uh, not only did this add value, I'm sure, to our listeners, but also to us as your host today. Uh, thanks again for being on the show with us. Yeah, I love that. Thanks for having me. Any, uh, any chance I can uh, to evangelize pricing, I'll go one person at a time, even if it's starting with, with Devin. <laughs> you got me. I, I'm, your, I'm your at least one person today. At least one person. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kyle. We appreciate you. Every week, we bring you a micro action, something to think about or an action you can put into play today. Discussing price can often be a skill gap for some sales reps. They can get prospects in the door and show them value, but when the big question of how much will this cost me is asked, things can get complicated. This week, try out Kyle's successful coaching tactic of asking reps what pricing objections are raised and what concerns they have when talking about pricing, either current or if you're changing to a new model. Then you can work with your reps on how to best address the dreaded pricing objection head on. 
If you're changing your pricing structure, work with your reps on how you can personalize pricing for each customer, if applicable, to address how much value they see instead of going for a one size fits all approach every time. And it's worth mentioning, revenue intelligence can give you the visibility into how these pricing conversations are playing out in the field so you can coach and hear how customers are responding. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.